Listener Production. I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. I'm in New Zealand for this app, and my guest, well, he's in Scotland. Can't tell you how excited I am to chat to Dario Franchitti. He's been high on the wish list for some time. Like many of you, I greatly admire what he's achieved as a racer, especially in America, where he won the IndyCar title four times, including three in a row. And he got to drink the famous winner's milk at the greatest spectacle in motor racing, the Indy 500, three times. It's a feat that very few have achieved. I've been fortunate to meet and interview him before during broadcasts of the Gold Coast event, but never had a good chance to talk at length about his proper love of cars and his genuine appreciation for the history of motorsport. Our podcast happened at the time of his Instagram series, Dario's Career in Cars, and man, there's been a few, from those that he was just at one with and others that left him nursing serious injury. Sadly, he lost some good mates along the way too. We'll talk about that later. And a crash that forced him to call time on professional racing. Mind you, he still pulls on the helmet for some seriously cool opportunities to drive priceless machines that made their mark in the sports annals. And he's pretty handy on the mic, calling the electric Formula E series as well. We start with early life and a true generational love of cars. So I was born in a place called Bathgate, just outside Edinburgh. Um, and my, my love of racing, first of all, I think came from, it came from my dad. Um, you know, it's, it's funny, I've been thinking about this recently and people always say, oh, who's your heroes? And uh, we're always talking about, yeah, Jim Clark, Jackie Stewart and all that. And it, it occurred to me the other day at the age of 46 that actually my dad's my hero. You know, and, and this, the decisions that I made and the things that I did and the things I fell in love with were all because of him. And, um, you know, he, he raced at the weekend. Actually, I've got a model of his old uh, Formula 2 Formula Two March there, uh, March 792. Um, and he raced Formula Ford and stuff in, locally in Scotland. And that, that really that started it all for me. Um, I remember sitting watching him, watching all the different cars at uh, at Ingolston, just outside Edinburgh, right next to the airport. Um, and it would be a situation, you would go there, I mean, late 70s, you'd go there and it'd be three or four Formula One cars, a couple of year old F1 cars, running around this little one mile circuit. Uh, <laughs> it was madness. And that that sort of, that instilled that that love of, of racing. And as far as cars, um, yeah, my dad had some pretty tasty stuff early on before he started blowing all his money on my on my racing. Um, I think he sort of highlights what RS3100 Capri, um, Escort, Mexico before that, and then he got a Ferrari Dino, had a, a, a blue uh, 246 Dino, which uh, unfortunately got written off. Uh, what else did he have? Then he went to Porsches and had a bunch of Porsches, which there was one in particular that... Um, was a 1980 he bought a red uh 930 911 turbo and um, I, I loved that car I, I mean it was just there was a point I went I had all these red cars in my garage and it was all because of this one car and I found it I was reading one of the magazines I've got behind me there and I, I looked and I thought, I'm sure that's my dad's car I've, I've actually got the magazine behind me here I'm sure that's his car 
And I looked at the interior and I said, it's got to be. So I did a bit of research and it was. I, I sort of stocked it for a while, bought it at auction, uh, had it fully restored. It's absolutely mint now. And uh, and gave him it last, middle of last year. So that was uh, that was that was a lot of fun to, to do and to have the car back. The family is really, is really cool. And then he spent all his money on on racing and uh, that, that was the end of the, the big car collection. Is the extension, the, the little extension to that story that he sold the Porsche to help your career. So that's the cool part of getting it back, isn't it? Yeah, that was, you know, I think at that point he could start, he could see it, you know, this racing Lark was going to get expensive. And uh, yeah, and so that, that car went. And as I say, I, I I looked for pictures of the car. I just, I, I, it was it was such a big part of my, my sort of my childhood memories. And Marino was the same. Uh, Marino and I remember sitting in the back of it um, back in the day before, like seatbelts for kids and stuff in the back of the car. And um, yeah, so that was, it was really cool. His, his face, I've, I videoed it all when I when he walked in the garage and it was undercover and he's like, well, what's this? And his face just dropped. Uh, so that was that was fun. It's in the family, the, the genetics, that's clear. Your brother Marino is an accomplished driver too. I recall you telling the Motorsport magazine guys that you both have very similar driving styles and the engineers have noticed this, haven't they? Yeah, we, we, we always talked about driving cars and what you know what we did and everything. But until you really see it in the data, you can't be sure. And we did Daytona together for the first time in, in 05. And um, the, those first laps that we overlaid and the data, the data traces all these lines of, of, of data, exactly what you're doing, the throttle, the brakes, the steering, all that stuff, identical. The way we released the brake pedal, the way we pressed it, back to the throttle, the steering angles, the, the balance we liked in the car. It was uh, it was quite shocking, actually, just how it's, it's sort of hardwired in your brain. And <laughs> I, I, blame, I blame my dad because he, he was the one who set up both our carts when we were kids. And it was like he set them up with a certain balance in mind. And we we drove to that, that setup. Amazing. Did you get competitive? He's younger, but brothers so often do. Well, as, as youngsters, there was a five-year age gap, so it wasn't so much getting competitive. He just annoyed me up until he was about... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, up until he was about 15, he just annoyed me. And then I thought, this guy's actually quite cool. And um, I sort of... I might have let him drive drive my car to school um, a couple of times. My, my factory, when I was driving for Mercedes, my company car. And so I'd let him drive it to school. We, we, from that point on, we became great mates. He lives five miles from here. And um, we're, we're great friends. And we, my sister likes to say we share a brain cell. We, we literally will be thinking someone. <laughs> and the phone will ring and there's Marino. Oh, I've been thinking. And uh, yeah, it's, um, he's, he's great. The only time we've ever got competitive, I think, in the car was the, the, the last race we did together. We did Petit Le Mans in, was it 12? I think 2012 and we were testing and he'd gone out and done a lap in the car and I thought right I'll have a go at this and off I went <laughs> and the car had live camera back to the pits because the gentleman driver that was that owned the team and everything was funding it they wanted to sort of give him real time data and tell him what to do so I'm blasting around a couple of turn one at Road Atlanta and I'm thinking I'm on new tires I'm going to show Marino who's boss put a big lap in and I've hit the dip at the turn one at Road Atlanta and uh, I think it was down, down, it was a breathe on the brakes down one gear flat on it hit the dip the car snapped sideways 
and I've caught the thing that's got a massive tank slapper, got it all together, and I've come back and I've come down the pit lane and I'm literally shaking with adrenaline. And Marino's hanging over the pit wall going... <laughs> <laughs> big congratulations, applause. Big, big congratulations, crap, clap. And I just, yeah, that, that, that's the only time I think we've ever been properly competitive. You're a proper student of the sport and you have been for a long time. You have a real thirst for it. Where did that come from? And especially the fondness, the real appreciation that you have for the legendary Jimmy Clark. I mean, I think it started very early. I have these memories of being like, sort of, I'm literally five or six years old and I'm in my grandparents' house in Italy and there was motorsport magazines, you know, only one or two sitting around the house. And it had that green cover with the white lines. And I would sit and just look at the pictures. And that sort of got me a bit into the history. I'd read Autosport every week. Um, and as I as I sort of got a bit older, I, I, I looked back more and more. Um, and my, my sort of my real love, I guess the first love, is the, the, the late 70s sort of F1 cars. And I've got models behind, behind me right here that uh, I just bought on eBay recently because my, my grandmother <laughs> my grandmother bought me these when I was a kid um, and that sort of started my love of certain Formula One cars and um, so I, I bought them but the Jim Clark thing it I think it was 1993 and Jackie phoned me up I was driving for Paul Stewart Racing and so Jackie's phoned me up and said oh, we've got a dinner in Edinburgh I would like you to go uh, I said, yeah, okay, <laughs> of course, whatever you want. Um, what's it about? And he said, well, it's the it's the 25th anniversary of Jim Clark's passing and we'd like to go up there and, and honour him and I'd like you to be there. Um, so I went and I sat next to Eric Dimmock, who's written, I think his book's actually up there too. He's And he was a, a great friend of Jim. And I sat at this dinner going, who was this guy? I knew a bit about him, but I thought, who is this, this man? Who is... And, and it started a, a, a sort of a, a, a real appreciation. And I, yeah, I, I went home and I, so it was one of those things, mum's like, what do you want for your birthday? I said, oh, I'd like a, a Jim Clark picture. And I got all my friends to buy me Jim Clark pictures, a lot of which I've still got up on the walls in Scotland. And that's where it started. And it was reading the books and talk, talking to his friends. And then it got a bit out of control and it was buying race suits. And I got his... Uh, it's 1964 Lotus Cortina at home, and there's a room in the house that's just or in, in my garage in, in Scotland. It's just full of it's full of Jim Clark memorabilia, and um, it's 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 been so interesting. I've gone to Indianapolis every year, and people will come up and tell me stories. Oh, I was at the '65 race. I was at the '64 race. I met Jim, um, and people would come up and say, "Here's my scrapbook from when I was a kid on Jim Clark." My my kids and my grandkids have got no interest in it. I'd like you to look after it for me. And stuff like that is, uh, is, is really humbling. Yeah. Priceless. T- tell us more about that car. Our listeners would love to know more about that Cortina. Yeah, so um, it's the it's a 1964 uh, British Saloon Car Championship winner. He did eight races in it. Uh, he won all eight. And uh, the number plate is BGH417B. If you go on YouTube, you'll see it sort of three-wheel around Crystal Palace and stuff. The, the story there, I've been looking for one. And I had my accident in Houston and I was lying in the, the, the hospital, had a, a fair bit of morphine on board, feeling good, not feeling much pain. <laughs> <laughs> and Andy, Andy Middlehurst, who um, owns 
the Jimmy's uh, the, the BRM engine car that won at Watkins Glen. Andy's a huge Jim Clark fan too. He's got a Cortina. He restored a bunch of the cars in the late 80s and he I phoned Andy. I said, Andy, um, I want to buy that car. There's a car for sale with somebody. I want to buy it. And he said, it's not really the one you want. He said, the one you want, I know where it is, but the guy wouldn't sell it. I said, well, you know, life's too short. Just let's buy it. So then he's phoned me back and he said, it's surprising I can remember this actually because I don't remember much of, of that that time. Um, and he said, uh, they've just put the price up, mate. He said, forget it. He said, well, we'll find the right car at the right time. I said, okay, good. And then he phoned me up, I don't know, eight months later and said, that car's for sale. The guy wants to sell it, he wants to sell it to you. This is the price, there's no haggling. Do you want it? Uh, yeah, I'll have it. And it showed up in Scotland on an open trailer. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And uh, it's, I've driven it a couple of times. I drove it from from my house in Scotland to the to the Jim Clark Museum, where it's now it's it's in the the museum sitting next to Lotus Twenty Five that actually I think came from Australia, um, and it's yeah, so it's it's sitting there, and um, some point I'll take it back and I take it out and I drive it to the to the, the the shop for coffee or something. It's funny when when people see it, they go oh Lotus Cortina, and then some people will see it and just freak out. I know. Just when you park it on the. Sh- yeah, because they know when you see it when it's parked on the street or in, or whatever. And I just, I love the fact I get to sit where where Jim sat and it's got his special steer mill that he liked. And um, it, it honestly, the, the Borders Roads, round about where he used to, to, to take his cars and, and play around, the car just came alive. It was it was brilliant. It wasn't so much fun on the motorway, but on the back roads, it was, ah, it was brilliant. Magic. You've had success in the early part of your career in karts, like most drivers, and, and then the junior formula. When did you crystallise it that this was more than pastime? It would be your sole pursuit, your life. I was always very serious about it, Rusty. I always, from even in karting, I always wanted to, to be a racing driver. It's all I ever wanted to do. From when I was a little boy, I wanted to be a racing driver. Then as you become, you get older and you realise, this isn't quite as simple as the... Uh, as you would like it to be um and you know, even in karting I, I was very serious um and then my you know it's one of those things you're not going to do it without support and i had a lot of support my parents some 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 friends back in scotland too um and there, was there a big was there a great plan I, I knew what I wanted to do, but really from that point, it was it was just trying to make it happen. And and I was very fortunate in the people I got involved with, um, you know, with 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 David Leslie, father and son, and Jackie Stewart, that sort of stuff. And um, you know, it's, it's the usual story. With without you know without finance, you're not going to go anywhere. And my my dad spent a lot of money on karting. And uh, well, what people spend today, it was a drop in the ocean, but it was a lot of money at the time. And, you know, um, he remortgaged the house for me to go race in that first year. And without, without uh, actually, to be honest, he didn't tell my mum he remortgaged it either. And if you've ever met my mother, that was a brave move. <laughs> <laughs> but, that, you know, then getting involved with Jackie Stewart and stuff, that, that was when I thought, well, there's maybe an opportunity but I look at the decisions I made at the time and I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't scared of risk, I'll tell you. I had nothing to lose, but I really wasn't scared of, of, of just throwing it out there, um, making big choices. Um, 
And it was, uh, I was going to say it was an exciting time. It was a terrifying time because you knew you were sort of one mistake or, you know, one some one decision by somebody else from, from having to go find a real job, which I had no idea what that would be. You were, you know, it's single-seaters early on, but there is the patch where you're, you're at uh, DTM with Mercedes and so on. Was there a point where you, you were thinking, maybe I'll, I'll end up going down this kind of saloon car or touring car path, or was it always that you wanted to get back to, to single-seaters in some way? I wanted to go to F1. Um, at that, that stage, I wanted to, you know, through the, the single-seater ranks, through Formula 3, um, I wanted to be an F1. And... 94 kind of changed my thinking a bit. I was in, in Formula 3 with Paul Stewart Racing and I was sort of, and Jan Magnussen and I were teammates and Jan, I won the first race and then Jan won, I think, nearly every other race that season. It was dominant performance. And uh, I thought, you know, my, my, the plan was always I was going to stay with Paul Stewart Racing through the whole staircase and that that changed my mind a bit. Um, you know, just the way things went inside the team, not with Paul or Jackie, but some other people and I just I decided to, to I got the opportunity to go to Mercedes um, and I drove the car I loved the car from the first moment I drove it that V6 that little heist revving V6 just screaming away all the the tech all the all those things and so I thought it was it was probably time to make a change and I I thought there was still a chance to to do Formula One, and it turned out, you know, actually came pretty close with with Mercedes at one point. But um, I, I would have been happy being a DTM driver. I had so much enjoyment driving those cars and and, and being in that championship. Um, but then it within two years it had priced itself into into oblivion. Opportunities did come from them though to to ultimately go to America, which I think was super cool and so so pivotal for your life and and what unfolded there you mentioned you mentioned formula one i mean there was the the test for jaguar and the chance to be test driver at mclaren but you in taking those punts you talked about before you you clearly thought that america was the right thing for you did you well in in the end of 95 i tested the mclaren as part of winning the mclaren the autosport young driver of the year that was the the test but normally you got sort of 10 laps around silverstone on a wet December day, because I was a, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the best, because I was a, a Mercedes young driver, they said, right, you, we're going to Jerez and it'll be a half day. So, ah, okay. So I did the test, it went well. Um, actually, Bernd Schneider and I got to do it. And that was the first time Schneider had driven a decent Formula One car. And um, it, yeah, as I say, it went well. And then nothing happened through, I've actually got a letter from Ron Dennis explaining to me why, I've kept everything, by the way, all the memorabilia. But there's a letter from Ron explaining why he's he didn't, you know, he hasn't sort of taken given me an op- opportunity to do anything. That was 96. 97, I went to America and uh, I'd sort of just arrived there, got my feet on the ground and Ron, actually Norbert called and said, you need to be walking on whatever day. We're going to have a, a meeting with Ron. And that was, and I said, can I bring my manager? And he said, absolutely not. okay then it's going to be one of those meetings so you know it was it was Ron laying out his sort of vision of what it was going to be and it was me being test driver in those days remember they tested Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday every week so it'd be driving in America at the weekends um, McLaren would or I think it was West at the time would sponsor the IndyCar Um, I'd do the race on, on Sunday I'd go to New York, jump on Concord, fly back to the UK. They'd fly me to 
the test, a test Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, do the reverse trip back, race the IndyCar. That was going to be my life. And it was a great opportunity, but there was a part of me didn't, I was going to say didn't trust Ron. That's the wrong thing. I just felt it was, it was sort of, I'd seen the way Alan McNish had been spat, spat out by the whole Formula One system. And I didn't, there was something in me just said, no, I'm not doing it. And I said, no. And um, I think the first time Ron and I had spoken since then was t- two years ago, the Goodwood Revival. That was it since then. How did that go? <laughs> it was actually quite pleasant. Um, I think that day he'd actually just been paid for his McLaren share. So he was feeling pretty good about life. <laughs> um, and that was, but that was on, I think that was also the beginning of the end for my Mercedes relationship. Um who knows what life would have been like had I taken that that, that, that option, but I didn't, I didn't think it was the right thing to do, and uh, I'm pretty happy with the way things went. Yeah, you should be. The Goodwood Festival of Speed is an annual hill climb featuring historic motor racing vehicles held in the grounds of Goodwood House, West Sussex, England. Just as famous is the unique building high sculpture erected on the grounds each year that represents a car manufacturer. Last year it was Aston Martin, the manufacturer that was also displayed in the very first Goodwood in 1993. Till people listening about the first time you drove a champ car, where you were, the sensations, what the, the feeling that it left you with. So... To give you a bit of backstory, um, I was at the end of year Mercedes party in uh, in Stuttgart, and I sat next to one of those complete, just fortunate things. I sat next to Paul Morgan, and Paul was uh, one of the founders of Ilmore with Mario Ilian, and those guys did the the Mercedes F one. In fact, they still do. Is, um, the company's sort of morphed into Mercedes high performance engines, but they do the they did the F one engines, the Mercedes IndyCar engines, and. Paul was just one of those just cool people. And uh, so we sat down to dinner and he said, so what are you doing next year? I said, well, I'd like to go to America. So Jan Magnussen had gone there. He was my teammate at Mercedes DTM. And Jan said, you've got to go there, mate. You've got to drive these cars. They're awesome. It's so much fun. And I said to Paul, I'd like to go to America. And he sort of looked at me and he said, well, let me see what I can do. Okay, thanks very much. And uh, January came and he phoned me. He said, right. This is what's going to happen. Norbert's going to call you in probably half an hour. He's going to tell you he's organised this test, which I have. And uh, you're going to test with a man called Carl Hogan. Uh, good guy. He's just bought new Reynards. He's got this team together. Um, we'll support it. Um, and if it goes well, you've got a job. So I went to Homestead. And uh, I was actually thinking about this other day because I flew out of Miami um, after the aborted St. Pete race. So I flew into Miami went to rent a car and they went, I'm sorry, where are you from? How old are you? No. <laughs> I got to go to Homestead. <laughs> so I had to go to this really dodgy rental car place and off I went. And um, it was Homestead Road Course and it was me and Jimmy Vassar, I think. And Jimmy was the reigning champion at the time. We're testing. And the first time the turbo lit up on that car, it was like, you know, that, that scene in Star Wars when the, the Millennium Falcon goes to light speed. <laughs> oh my god and I was used to driving a car with sort of 9 inch rear tyres power steering 
all this stuff, this thing is a beast. Every time I take my hand off the wheel to pull the, the lever for the, the sequential shifter, the car would veer across the road because I couldn't hold it in a straight line with one hand. And the grip level and the fast corners and just how physical it was, I I loved it. I was totally out of my depth and I absolutely loved it. And it went well and um, I got the job. You sure did. And it, it began a chapter in your life, mate, that was hugely successful um i, I want to in, in steering this this champ car indycar aspect of your your time let's talk a little bit about aussies for a second and in, an involvement with with aussies firstly uh tinkle green barry and kim green um, i mean aussie motor racing fans look upon them in this sort of this you know this legendary manner what was it like to be a part of all of that as a as a young racer i'm thinking sitting here thinking of barry um there was, a, there was a clip the other day. I've been doing this thing on it on Instagram, sort of visiting each car I drove throughout my career. Which is fabulous, by the way. It's fabulous. Oh, yeah. thank you. It's, it's about to get better. We've just gone through the NASCAR years. It was a bit bumpy. It's about to get more uh-huh. like, uh, more successful again, more fun. Um, and there was a thing when I went to drive for Jaguar and they interviewed Barry Green at the IndyCar race. And Barry's like, yeah, we, we he wanted to do it. We let him do it. We hope he's going to stay with us. And it was just Barry's attitude from day one. He's, he was just, I think, pragmatic is a word, but he just did such, things with such a light touch. He, he managed his team up until there was a famous saying, you got a minute, mate? <laughs> <laughs> and if he said that, to, if I said that to Paul Tracy just now, Paul go, it was that. <laughs> Anybody in the team got a minute, mate? That meant you're in for a bollocking. Um, so he was he was fierce, but from the first time I sat with him midway through 97 and talked about driving for his team, I just thought, yeah, you're, you're the guy I want running my team. There's something just about him that he's just, he was a different class. And um, when we won in, in 99 at Surfers, he was able to win the, the the his home race uh, him and Kim it was I, that was just like a bit of payback because that guy put a tremendous amount of of trust in me um and gave me a really big chance when I, I look back now and I think in 97 season all I did was crash I was either really quick or crashed and he he said yeah I want that kid uh, in in my car amazing that 99 uh Gold Coast experience was huge for all sorts of reasons the state of play in the championship you worked with brett crusher murray the gregarious pr man is that i'm trying to remember is that the famous don king presser is that the year that he did it too <laughs> yeah that was the famous don king uh, press conference different times clearly <laughs> but that, that was that was crush i mean the the first time i met crusher i came off the plane i think in 97 and it was one of the early races at that point in the calendar and I came off the, the plane going, there was all these press people and there was this big guy that sort of bossed me around. <laughs> and I didn't, at that point, I didn't enjoy any of the sort of the fun of Australia. I went there, kept my head down, did my job. And then in 98, I Greg and I went there like two weeks before and we I fully enjoyed the, the surfers experience before the race, but after the race. Um, and that was really when I fell in love with Surfers Paradise and, and Australia. And, um, you know, 99 was a great race as far as, you know, 
I always remember that the pole position lap, winning the race. Um, you know, it's the one car I have at home. The one sort of cup, champ car, Indy car. Yeah, it's the one I have at home, and it was kind of the last of the fun races because the next race, you know, Greg was killed, um, and that was the last. So that to me, that was the last sort of of the carefree races when life was just just fun, and you know, you got paid well to go race. Uh, you race indie cars. Um, one of my big regrets is that night after winning that race, I didn't go out um, because I had to go to Japan the next morning very, very early. Um, I got the Tokyo Motor Show, I think. So that was that was one of those big regrets. I wish I'd gone to the, the after party because, you know, at that point I'd, I'd met Ashley as well and, and, and life, you know, life had, life's changed. Yeah. The car, I'm glad you kept the car. I think that's super cool that you did that, mate. I mean, it was a period for... Champ car. You mentioned the horsepower before, the way the cars, what they were like. They were just a good, sexy-looking race car. An incredible lineup of of drivers in that that period of the of the sport as well. To be in the midst of all that, to be winning races and fighting for that championship, that's huge, mate. Yeah, that was uh, it. Was a fun time. It was so fun that that you know, fighting '98, fighting was an RD at Surfers for pole position. I remember that well because it was his last road course race. And he'd been the dominant guy, and I wanted to show that, you know, I was gonna, I could go toe to toe with him before he headed off to F one. And um, yeah, so that, that the competition in, in those periods was was immense. The cars were so, God, they were, they, they took no prisoners. I'll tell you, they, you know, even you know on, on the street courses around surfers, you were just spinning the tires up every corner trying to manage it all. Sequential shifts, the, the the speed, the noise, the the violence of it all was was incredible leaving the pits on cold tires on any of those street circuits was you know it was a, an eye-opening experience you mentioned before about um about greg moore and and you know you were mates with dan weldon as well and i can sense it in your voice mate even when you when you bring it up now to to lose those guys um from a fan point of view was was immensely upsetting i can't imagine how it was for for you as a as a friend how do you regather and go racing when those moments happen, when that, when that comes into your life? Um, I think there were very different times in my life um, when Greg died, when, when, when Dan died. Um, so I think I was more equipped to deal, if that's the right word, when, when Dan died. Um, when Greg died, I, I mean, this is another instance of Barry Green just being an absolute legendary person. I said, Barry, I don't want to get in a car. He said, fine. He said, go away, do what you got to do, go to Scotland, relax. When you're ready to come back, come back. And I took months and months off. And actually, the next time I got in the car, something broke on it and I broke my pelvis and smashed my head up and everything. But that's a different story. Um, But I was really, at that point, just devastated. And I didn't want to go near a racing car, didn't really want to do it. Um, Really, really struggled. Um, when, When Dan died, it was, I mean, it was... It was, it was tough, but it was Tony and I were, were supposed to be testing the new car that Dan had developed, and we were both back in the car days later, um, and I, I sort of felt a, a responsibility almost to, to to start testing this car and uh, and and as one of the elder statesmen by that point of the series of and sort of helping to guide and helping to to to, to, to lead everybody forward. And Tony and I by that point were were two of the older guys, and we 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 talk about it now, we did feel that responsibility to, to get on with things and, and, and to keep the show on the, on the road. But 
there's a certain degree of you just go forward. You just, I mean, we all do it, I guess. You just go forward. You just put one foot in front of the other and just get on with it. But they were, uh, yeah, those those were those were horrible times. Both, and and the problem is a lot of things you forget in life. I don't forget, and either of those those moments. I think when when Greg and and when Dan died and. You know, when Justin died, I was playing iRacing last night with uh, with Stefan Wilson, his, his, his brother, and I was, I was just thinking about him. Um, yeah, horrible, horrible. The real the real bad side of our sport, I think Mario Andretti said it in, when when Ronnie Peterson died, he said, you know, racing, racing is also this. Mm. You can, and, and, and um, I'm sure you, you do cherish, lots of the great memories that you have with those guys. And there's a fun one that I'd like to continue the conversation on now with you, Greg Moore, and, and I think Max. And you guys drove from one race to another in, in a motorhome. And I think you <laughs> shared the driving, didn't you? And you literally kind of made it like a non-stop race. You'd, you'd keep motoring and, and switch drivers on the go. And, and, and at the same time, am I right in saying you're all deep in contract negotiations or something along those lines, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we we were. This is when when these stories come out now. Um, I, this is the point where, where Greg's dad, Rick, you know, twenty odd years later now, still goes, "I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I don't want to hear it." <laughs> yeah, I spoke to Rick. You know, yesterday we text back and forwards, and uh, we we speak on the phone and stuff. And he'll tell me, he goes, "I, I don't, I don't, I don't want to hear." It. So we were at Mid Ohio, uh, ninety eight, and we had to get to Road America. So fair old drive, probably eight hour drive. And Greg had this bus, you know, like a, a Prevo motorhome, beautiful yeah. thing. Yeah. He's like, right boys, we're going to, uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to drive. Um, you ever driven a bus before? No? Max, you? <laughs> no. He goes, ah, it's okay. It's okay. I've driven it. Greg at this point is 21 or something, 22 years old. It's like, oh God. The insurance company must be having a you know a coronary by this point. <laughs> so we head off. We stayed in Cleveland. I think Greg had a girl with him. Yeah, he did. Which is not, most not unusual. Um, so we we stayed in Cleveland the night. We're driving up the next day, and Greg would be driving. And the phone would ring, and he'd be like, "Max, take over." So he'd sort of almost driving along the highway, step out to one side. Max would get in. He'd be driving. Greg would go in the back, take his phone call with whichever team owner. You all right, Greg? How's it going? Oh, yeah, yeah, good, good. How, how'd it go? <laughs> oh, I'm fine. Who's that? Oh, mate, you know. Then my phone would ring. I'd go in the back, oh, hey, and I was trying to do a deal. I think I was trying to extend my contract with Barry at the time. We'd have a discussion, come back. How's it going? Oh, everything's fine. Yeah, everything's good. Everybody's at home. Yeah, yeah, I suppose my, my mum. Yeah, she's fine. Then Max would foam a drink and he was trying to do some deal. And it just, it was so convoluted. But we had these rules that we would never discuss our business. We never talked about setups. We never gave away secrets. We never talked about our business. Um, just had fun. We just had, we just had fun. And, you know, that 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 trip to Australia that we that we did in 98, that was that was one of the happiest times I can ever remember. You know, Greg's great friend Al Robbie came down as well and we just messed around and it was, yeah, it, it was so much fun. Um, but then you got on the track and it was it was work, it was business. It was, yeah. 
I want to bring that sense of mateship back to the, the the Australian connections again for a second, and that is a connection for you and your brother, for that matter, with James Courtney, good mates. And you got to drive for Dick Johnson Racing in, in 2010 on the Gold Coast in the supercars. Did you in What was that like for you? And was Bathurst, in the grand scheme of things, something that you would love to have ticked at some stage? Yeah, that was... That was really cool. Um, the original plan was that I was going to drive with James in 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 his car, um, but but the things didn't work out that that way. Um, I had a, I had so much fun. God, that, the, the car was it was the most infuriating thing to drive. It was such a, a peculiar style, and I loved the I loved the challenge of it. Um, the I guess my big memory of that. Um, a couple of those was Paul Morris trying to dry the track using his helicopter yep. at Ipswich. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that was that, that didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> and at, at the start of the race, so I've, I haven't done a standing start since 1994. Whoa. And I'm on the grid, I'm sitting there, I pull first, and I take off, and it's like, oh, I'm passing people. This is amazing. And I've passed Dixon, who's... Um, I was in the Jim Beam car, he was in the Jack Daniels car. So I'm going wailing on past him, laughing. It's like, ha, gotcha. Come to the, the first corner of that hairpin and all hell's broke loose. And I think Jack and I think Will mm-hmm. got, got together and one of the cars is lying in the middle of the track with maybe one corner left on it. So I've nosed up to this car. I'm like, ah, crap. So hit reverse, reverse back and smash straight into a car that's behind me. I look in the mirror and there's Dixon going. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> what exactly? I, so, ah, it was it was it was a lot of fun. Didn't didn't do particularly well, but had a, had a great time and um, you know loved loved any time I can get to hang out with Courtney. It's, yeah. it's it's so much fun. I've known him since he was since he was a little boy uh, or teenager. You know, he yeah. when he raced. I think we first met in Paris when we were doing the go-kart race and he him and Marino and Pat Long and that whole group were as tight as you like you know they were always they would come up to Scotland and they would stay in my house I'd be living in, in America and they'd stay in my house and I'd get this we're, uh, we're going to stay in your house and I'm thinking oh god, god. So I told my mum I'd say mum mum please 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 go over to the house make sure the garage is locked hide the keys Just don't worry about the don't worry about the booze or anything just hide the keys of the garage because those lunatics will decide it's a good idea to take one of the cars out. Um, actually, there's another story with that. So I was I was a Honda driver for most of my, my IndyCar career, and they would give me a car in the UK. It was an Accord Type R. Did you guys have yeah, that? Yeah. A big wing? Yep, yeah, yeah, beautiful. So I, I would use that when I was at home. Anyway, Marino and James were in, uh, in Scotland and decided they were taking it out. And um, I get this phone call from my mum. Marino's too scared to call you. Uh, there's been a bit of an accident. <laughs> oh. What happened, Mum? Oh, um, him and James. So as soon as I hear that, the <laughs> sirens are going off. Him and James uh, were driving along and they got forced off the road by a lady in a minivan. <laughs> what? Okay. How's the car? Oh, it's destroyed. It's destroyed. Yeah, it was completely broken. I phoned Honda, they're, they're sending a new one, they're not very happy. Okay. So eventually, phone Marino, he's telling me this whole convoluted story. Years later, I get the whole story. There was a humpback bridge. 
uh, that Marino used to use in his, his younger days and see how far he could jump his car. <laughs> so he thought, this Accord Type R has got a bit more poke than the, the stuff I've been driving. Let's see how far we can do it. So they're belting along. And he sort of turns to James and goes, watch this. And they've taken off. And he's gone, oh, shit. <laughs> so, of course, he's jumped out of the throttle. The thing's gone, boom. And it's nose dive. <laughs> nose dive, front subframe, everything gone, destroyed. And that's when they came up with this ridiculous story. So, um, JC, if you're watching, um, you owe me, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you owe yeah. me a few beers. <laughs> kids, kids, do not try this at home. Very cool. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, let's go with a, uh, another friend as well uh, from the, the the Gold Coast. That is that is Mick Do, and you may remember we actually did um, this side story for one quick second. We did a, a boat trip with he, Daryl Beatty, and a few others out to um, Morton Island at one stage, and I think Mick had what was called a skater back then. And I recall looking across at you, and the pair of us, like our our faces were quivering like you were doing a parachute jump. You know, it was a. It was <laughs> <laughs> I remember that bloody boat. Oh, it's hilarious! It was hilarious. But I, I'm, where I'm going here is is two wheels, mate. And that is you have a you have a little bit of a a fondness for for two wheels. And and as you shared in your Instagram story very very recently, it, it was also one that that had kind of frightening consequences for you too. What what happened? Yeah. Um, well, I'll go back a second. I mean, who doesn't want to be? McDoin or Barry Sheen. <laughs> exactly. You know, these. I was so fortunate that these guys became my friends. Um, but there's, there is still a massive amount of hero worship there. Yeah. And um, we actually did a trip up in the in the hills above Surfers. We took some bikes, uh, Mick organised for us uh, back in two thousand. We did a bit of a trip. Um, and uh, that was that was a lot of fun, but so that 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 was actually when I ordered the the bike that I broke my back on. It was a Senna, wasn't it? Was it a Senna? What did you buy? It was a Senna, yeah. I've been. Um, we were at what's his name of the bike dealership? Oh, with Paul Feeney on the Gold Coast with Feeney. Yeah, I was going to say Feeney. It was Feeney, it was Feeney's place, and he's like, "Look at this boy. I saw this at the bike show. Yeah. This MV Senna." And Montoya and I have both gone. Gotta have. <laughs> gotta have that. So I got one. Um. I was, I was up in Scotland. I was on my way to the race in Japan. I'd, I'd stopped off um, from the US, had a week off, and I was, Marino had just picked up a, a little 600RR Honda. And I was riding along in it, and um, the, so what had happened, the MV had sent some go faster bits for it, which was very nice of them. But the, the dealership that fitted them, they left an O-ring, Actually, crimped and oaring. I've got pictures of it on on my phone because of the insurance claim afterwards. But um, it, and it sprayed oil on the back tire, and I went off and I landed in the back of my head and and broke my spine. So that was that was um, very. I was really lucky. Um, I remember McCray. I phoned McCray from hospital <laughs> to tell him what had happened. He's like, "Oh God!" And I think Mick had some choice words too. <laughs> <laughs> good to have, good to have mates. Yeah, exactly. That's the end of part one of my chat with Indianapolis Motor Speedway and American Motorsport Hall of Famer Dario Franchitti. Probably should clarify that when we referenced Max in that fun motorhome story, it was Max Pappas, a former F1 driver and champ car race winner. 
And when he mentioned Ashley, that's his former wife, Hollywood actress Ashley Judd. Head back to the library now and fire up part two where we talk a little about Bathurst, his rivalry with Aussie Will Power, the IndyCar crash that thwarted plans for a move to sports cars with Porsche and a whole lot more. Listener.